ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. Most of us are now well aware of the benefits of reading aloud to small children. The research is in. Reading books to kids stimulates the hyperactive language centres in their brains, accelerates their communication skills, social skills and literacy skills. And just putting aside all that neuroscience for a moment, it's also a total joy, both for the kid and for the reader, because you catch the kid at that really lovely moment, that perfect moment, when they've had their dinner, they've been hosed down and put in their jammies, and they're a bit sleepy and ready for bed. But there's not always an adult around to give a child their bedtime story. Some years ago, Roman Sheehan met some children going into foster care, and she realised that they will often arrive into the home without ever having enjoyed that lovely, magical interlude, getting lost in the telling of a story from a book. Roman Sheehan is a former nurse and midwife, and she became aware of the situation of homeless kids when she was working in a hospital. She became friends with a foster carer, and she realised that there are so many kids who miss out on being read to. And so she set up the Pajama Foundation, which trains thousands of volunteers to simply read stories aloud to children in care. Hi, Bromwyn. Hi. What was your favourite bedtime story as a little kid? Well, I am a big fan of A.A. Milne. As am I. And my uh, nighttime routine was our dad used to come and tuck us in. And he used to say, arms in, arms in. And he would tuck in the bed sheets really, really tight. And then my favourite childhood memory is him reading me and my sister the poem, Alexander Beadle. I had a little Beadle, Alexander was his name. He lived in a matchbox and I called him just the same. And Nanny let my Beadle out. Nanny let my Beadle out and Beadle ran away. Yes, it's a tragedy, but Beadle, I don't want to, spoiler alert, Beadle comes back in the end though, doesn't Beadle? And Beetle felt guilty for running away. That's right. <laughs> um, and uh, Nanny said she was sorry. And she said she didn't mean, mean it, it. And, and I, I never, never said, said she, she did. did. Yeah. Oh, that's a lovely story. I, I, I was read that as a kid by my dad, and I read that endlessly. That and one of the, all those other poems from when we were very young, and now we are six, uh, to my kids as well. And you had plenty of that as a kid. Yeah, I did. And that was I have I've had the absolute honour and ple- um, pleasure of having a beautiful childhood in the 80s and a brother and a sister and a very happy and secure and loving environment. And that's something that I think is a basic human right. And there are some children in our community that have had a rocky start. And I think it's up to people like myself who have had a good childhood to contribute. What feeling did those bedtime stories give you tucked in tightly under the sheets like that? Well, it's it's just love and security and routine and every night being the same. That's really important for the growing brain. Children who have experienced trauma, you know, trauma rarely impedes brain development. So education was easy for me. Home life was easy and very non-stressful 
you read to your own kids as well. So I think you find that when you do the reading, it actually soothes a few jagged nerves because, you know, the nickname for that period when you get kids ready for this is called arsenic hour by and large, <laughs> isn't it? When you've got to get them fed, you've got to get rid of the cone of refuse of food that's fallen off the high chair after dinner, get them clean. and then But then they enter that kind of lovely sleepy dozy mode and that's when I think you all get a moment of peace from that don't you 100% yeah 100% and it's such a beautiful time it's such a bonding time and it really will set you up it's calming it's calming it's mindfulness and it's really really special but books a big part of the childhood generally for you Yes, we I can remember our routine was um Friday night was library and fish and chips and I don't know if it was it was probably me because I tend to muddle my words. We used to say Friday night was bribery and chips. <laughs> <laughs> so you came then all your young life to really associate books and reading with pleasure and comfort and security and discovery as well. Absolutely. And then when I had my own children, um, one of my friends was a primary school teacher and she gave me books and said, read, 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 read. And so that's what I did with my children from newborn babies. And I, I loved it. I got to see how they loved it. And then when they went to school for the first time, I, I saw how they learned to read almost overnight, almost like magic. Um, I, I didn't try and teach them to read books, but that's how children learn to read, by having book, books read aloud to them. They sat with you, followed the words on the page, and then when it came time to get phonics or whatever it was that was going to teach them how to read, they were able to glom onto it very quickly then. Absolutely. And Mem Fox, one of our beautiful children authors here in Australia, says that every child should have a thousand books read aloud to them before they learn to read themselves. The language in books is different from our oral language. Um, you can tell um, when a child has been read to because of the, their vocabulary. Kids won't let you read a thousand books to them. They want the same books every night, though. That's the thing. Maybe the same book a thousand times might work. It does count. Right. It okay. does count. Okay. <laughs> so where did you grow up, Roman? I was born in Auckland in New Zealand. Then when I was two, we went to Fiji for two years and I have some childhood memories of living in Fiji as well. Came back to Auckland and when I was four and then we came to Australia to live when I was 11. What kind of lessons did you get while you were a kid in Fiji? Were there much greater disparities in income? Yes, there was. And we were in Fiji in the late 60s and there weren't many expats in Fiji at the time. And I got to play with a lot of the local children. As a matter of fact, one of my memories that I can remember quite clearly and is that a young Fijian girl um, stole one of my dolls and I wanted to ring the police. <laughs> and mum explained to me that I had lots of toys and she didn't actually have any toys and that she could keep my doll. Sometimes it's early childhood memories that influence what you do later on in life. So the family moved to Brisbane and you went to school there. Were you good at school? Were you a natural student? I would say I was av very average. Yeah, I was a very average, well, maybe, maybe I'm discrediting myself, maybe a little bit above average. When I went nursing, that was kind of my, I'd always wanted to be a nurse. I did very well um, academically at nursing. Why did yeah. you want to be a nurse? I wanted to either be a nurse or a policewoman. And I chose nursing. Both my grandparents were nurses. Just I love people 
and I wanted to do something that you could, that was practical, that you could move around lots, that would be really interesting. And I really nursed for 21 years and absolutely loved it. Do you ever wonder what would have happened if you'd gone into the police force instead? Yeah, interesting, isn't it? I, I wonder if I had gone into the police force, I would have ended up in child protection. And knowing myself, I'm, I'm pretty sure that I probably could have done that. So where did you begin your training as a nurse? I trained at the Royal Brisbane Hospital. I'm in my 50s and so I was hospital trained and we did uh, seven weeks of PNC in the School of Nursing and then we were let loose out onto the wards as a 17-year-old. But we were very well protected. You'd ha- you'd have a junior nurse and a senior nurse and a registered nurse and you'd all share the same patients. It was a wonderful way to do your training and you learned a lot. So by the time I think everyone got to the first year of the end of the first year, you kind of knew if this is what you were cut out for or not. After I did my nursing training, which was three years, you had to do a year postgraduate before you could start your midwifery training. And it was the Royal Women's Hospital. And that was a year training and it was just divine. I loved it. I loved the um, anatomy and physiology of, of midwifery and to see the beginning of life is such a pleasure. I've seen thousands of babies being born and often I'd be crying along with the parents. It was a very, very special profession. Experienced midwives are amazing to watch in action. They mm. have all that knowledge and that experience. And as the parent for a first time coming around you, this is all astonishing what's going on and terrifying. Women, the women are making sounds that you'd normally make you'd associate with someone dying, actually. In fact, they're actually just giving birth. And an experienced midwife has seen it thousands of times before. And to be honest, I have to say, I regarded like the experienced midwives as kind of like these elite priestesses who have all this secret knowledge about the world? Yeah, when I did my nursing, my midwifery training, which was in the early 90s, there was midwives there that had been a midwife for 40 years. They could just know things that were going to happen, about to happen. They could, yeah, you can, you get really good at reading people and patterns. Yeah, amazing. I think, amazing. So, I think sometimes a midwife should compile a book on the things women say when they're going into transition, what they, things they yell at their husbands that moment of transition. It's colourful. It, it, it really is. And sometimes if, you know, you'd come into a change of shift and you'd be, uh, you'd come on and meet a person for the, for the first time and they might be transitioning or close to delivering and then, and, and so they're in a very um, wild and fragile oh, yeah. state. And then, and then after the baby's born, it's almost like you got to meet them for the first time. <laughs> Oh, hello. <laughs> so this is what you're really like. So there you are in the hospital. You're, you're doing your dream job and you're loving the nature of your work. It's kind of what you always wanted to do. Tell me how you started encountering stray children in the hospital. Yeah, well, when I was doing my nursing training, I worked a couple of times in the children's hospital and I incidentally nursed um, some foster children there was one little guy, his name was Henry and he lived in the hospital and he was two at the time. He was born with incomplete airway and so he, he had a tracheostomy, which is a hole in your neck that he had to breathe through for the first two years of his life. And they, he had to have several operations where they had to operate on his trachea, which is his windpipe, as he grew. So he literally lived in the ear, nose and throat ward and he had his own room. He had all these beautiful clothes that were bought to him by 
bought for him by all the nurses. He had a little bike. He used to ride around his little push bike around the ward when all the other children were having their tonsils out. So he and he was a foster child. So that was my my first experience of coming in contact. So he was living in the hospital. At that stage, this is in the eighties. Um, yeah, he he had his health concerns where he had to have daily attention to his airway. And there was no parent or guardian with him at the time? Not at that stage, but he, he ended up going home to a family years later, so I found out. Had you had any contact with kids in care up to that point? When I was doing my training again, I can remember working in, in, um, in casualty and we had a young boy, he was 13, and he was, um, I think he had run away from his foster care placement and was living on the street and I can remember talking to him all of 13 and not being able to get my head around the fact that he lived on the street. And when I said to him, but where do you sleep? I can remember him saying that he slept up a tree. I don't know how long he he was doing that for, but I was thinking, I remember thinking to myself, wow, how, how could you possibly sleep up a tree? All these fleeting uh, experiences, I think, um, over my nursing career and then when my children went to primary school, I got to have another look into the foster care system. Yeah. I suppose we can know, we can sort of hear that there are homeless children living in extreme circumstances like that. But it's one other thing to meet a kid who's going through that. Even today, I think a lot of our homelessness is hidden. You know, there's a lot of it that you just don't know, that you don't know people's circumstances. Like you say, you met your husband, you built your own family. How did you and your husband meet? We're very uh, cheesy. We actually went to school together. How old were you when you met each other? I was 15 and he was 17. So we've known each other for a very long time. Once you had kids, did you feel confident you could handle motherhood after being a nurse and midwife all those years? Yeah, I think I think you, nothing really prepares you uh, for being a first-time mum. I was probably uh, presumptuously confident being a midwife, working in the nursery and looking after six babies. I thought, how can it, how hard can it be to look after one? But it's very different when it's your own child and you worry and uh, you worry about your own children, which was something that was unexpected for me. How hard can uh, it be? You said. Yeah, yes. Well, it can be quite hard actually, can't it? <laughs> What sort of advice did you get from your family and friends about reading to your kids? Yeah, I think um, it was one of my nursing, one of my teaching friends that gave me books and said, read, 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 read. I can remember I went back nursing when my daughter was four months old and my on the weekend and my husband looked after my little, she was six months old and he he thought I was a little bit strange when I told him he had to read to a newborn baby. But then when my daughter was sitting up, I arrived home from work for him to meet me in the driveway and say, look what I have taught Kate. And I came upstairs. He handed her a little board book and she held it up the right way. And that's a concept about print, holding books the correct way and then turning the pages. And he said, Kate, show me the tiger. So she held up the book the correct way, turned three or four pages, found the tiger and went, ah. So my husband thought he was an absolute genius <laughs> teaching um, six-month-old, 
you know, who can't really, who can't, your babies can't speak, but they can certainly comprehend. Like I mentioned at the start, we know how important it is. There's all the science that's been done, neuroscience done on the importance of reading aloud to kids when, when they're little. What more can you tell me about that? So literacy equates to your quality of life. The more literate you are, the happier you are, the healthier you are. And obviously, literacy really equates to your employment as well. So I think literacy is fundamentally important and it starts at an early age. So your oldest daughter, Kate, went to school. Tell me about this little girl that she met once she started school. Yes, my child went to school in the northern suburbs of Brisbane. There was a child that was in foster care that was in the same year as my daughter. And we invited this young lady to Kate's grade four birthday party. must have been her 10th birthday party. And it was her first birthday party that she'd ever been invited to. Yet she'd been at the school since prep. So what happened on the day of the birthday? Her foster mum didn't drive and she'd caught two buses to bring this young lady to my daughter's birthday party, as well as she had to drag along all the other foster kids that were in the home and Obviously, I quickly got my husband to drive them back home. And this young lady kept coming up to me throughout the birthday party to say, thank you so much for inviting me. And is there anything that I can do to help? So she really touched me. And I had a lot to do with her for over the next few years. How about the foster mum? You mentioned there she had a bunch of kids she had to bring with her to this party because she couldn't leave them alone at home, presumably. What was her story? What did you find out about oh, her? She was amazing. And and one of the reasons I started the Pajama Foundation because I was really inspired by her. She'd, she'd been a carer for 35 years at that stage and she had had more than 100 kids through her home. And I was blown away by her absolute contribution. I think foster carers are the unsung hero. Children that come into care have been traumatised and they need a lot of um, love and attention and there's these magnificent people out in the community that literally open their hearts and their homes to vulnerable kids and take care of them and I think they're extraordinary. Now, I caught up with her last October. 53 years she's been a foster carer. 53 years and she still has a house full of children. I mean, who does that? She's never been on a holiday. She doesn't spend any money on herself, yet she dedicates her life work. Not that foster carers are paid. I mean, they receive an allowance, but they're essentially volunteers. I just don't think they're praised or acknowledged enough. So after that, you started visiting this carer quite a bit more. Did she have babies in her care? Yeah. So one day when I was visiting her, an 18-month-old baby boy had just arrived in foster care. And he had, he had arrived with nothing. And when I saw him, he had an adult T-shirt on and a nappy. He, a little baby with an adult T-shirt on? Well, he had arrived with no clothes. And she hadn't had a young person for a long time. And so she had no equipment or clothing. And she was about to go shopping. And I said, before you go and get anything, my four-year-old son has finished with all his baby products. And so I filled my car with porticots and prams and high chairs and clothes and books and toys and took them around to her. And she was so grateful that she wanted to pay me. Of course, uh, of course I didn't let her. 
but she wrote me the, uh, a very beautiful handwritten note to thank me. And look, li- looking into this little 18-month-old baby boy who was very unwell with a dreadful cold and she was asking my advice because she knew I was a nurse, I thought, this is crazy that this happens in my suburb. Looking into his big brown eyes, I thought, what gift can I give him right now? And my experience of my own kids was the gift of reading and the love of learning and Alexander Beadle. So if I can get him to love reading, to love learning, no matter if he moves foster care placements, if he goes back to his biological family, if he loves reading, then that has to play a difference in his future. So is this the moment when you got the idea for the Pajama Foundation? Correct. When you saw this little guy, sick, sick baby, mm. in a in an adult t-shirt mm. in foster care, it was a yellow t-shirt. I'll never forget him. He'd be in his early twenties now. Uh, the last time I heard from him or about him, he was twelve and he loved reading. So I hope that that we've had some impact on his little life. How did you make the connection between? what a kid like that needs, and reading, setting up a reading program. Because it was my experience, it was my children's experience, the the statistics around children in foster care is that they haven't been immersed with early literacy. 92% of children in care are below the average reading level at age seven. 75% of children in out-of-home care won't finish grade 12. And it just makes sense that empowering kids with education, the earlier the better, will have a positive impact on their life moving forward. But how much did that memory of perfect, that perfect feeling of security and comfort from your own childhood being read to, did that play a a role in this, the memory of that feeling? Absolutely. Like how can you contribute to an 80-month-old baby? You can. You know, it's one child at a time, one book at a time. So I formed the the Pajama Foundation and I knew that I couldn't read a thousand books to all the children myself. So um, I went into the local newspaper and I said, calling for volunteers to read books aloud to children. And I was inundated and still have been 18 years later, inundated by beautiful volunteers that that share in my vision and uh, want to help out and contribute. What kind of response were you talking about? One local newspaper in the northern suburbs of Brisbane, and I got 50 pyjama angels that I then trained. Um, Obviously, all our volunteers are interviewed, screened, trained, uh, have working with children check, and they're called pyjama angels. And one pyjama angel is matched up with one child in care who may visit in the uh, in their foster home, supervised by the foster carer once a week. So one kid has their very special person. And that person stays with them, even if they transfer from an, to another home? Um, my volunteers are amazing and they do stay with the children. And my Sunshine Coast Volunteer of the Year has been a pyjama angel with the same young man for 15 years. So can you imagine the relationship that they have formed is really significant. August is a beautiful time for me because I go around to every area that we're operating in and we're cans down to the Gold Coast, Sydney and Melbourne. We mentor 1,200 children every week, just over 1,200 kids. And we try and keep it one-on-one because that's where the magic happens and all children love and deserve attention and they have their very own angel. So sometimes it's not possible and one angel might uh, mentor a couple of uh, children 
and we read books aloud, we play all those wonderful childhood games and there's so much learning around games. Help with homework, do craft, help with cooking. We watch them on the trampoline. One of my 70-year-old pyjama angels was doing the times table to rap music. Is the consistency of that relationship an important factor here? Yeah, absolutely, 100%. So research tells us that a child who, well, any children, you know, needs one significant person in their life that can really help them get through a traumatic childhood. Yeah, because kids often have issues of trust, don't they, when they're 100%. in these situations. And if you show up week after week, every all the time, over a period of years, then the, the trust is A hundred percent. And so one of our prerequisites of being a pyjama angel is that um, we want you to volunteer for at least 12 months. These children have a lot of people coming and going in their lives, but we're very fortunate that um, a lot of our angels, uh, our average length of volunteering is three and a half years, but we've got five, 10, 15, and even 18 years um, a longevity of our pyjama angels and young people. Who was the first child officially to be read to by a pyjama angel? Yeah, I, on the 3rd of February 2005, we read to a little girl called Natasha. She was about six. She came to the door, took one look at her pyjama angel and went and hid it under the bed. <laughs> the pyjama angel sat on the floor and read <laughs> to two feet, sticking out of the bed. And that's how we started. Um, she came out of the bed eventually after some weeks or something, I expect. <laughs> yes, yes, she did. I think under the bed was... Um, it's not uh, sustainable. <laughs> but yeah, we, we attract really beautiful, happy people that want to give back to the community. That's their, their common theme. What are the reading levels of kids in care like typically from Look, I could, I think you could safely say that every child, well, most children would be a couple of years behind their peers. So these kids aren't like your daughter who was kind of ready to just bolt out out of the blocks when she went to school. These kids are starting from a distinct disadvantage because they haven't been read to. That's right. And when I started um, 18 years ago, there was 21,000 children in foster care in Australia. Now there's close to 48,000. So the number of children in foster care has more than doubled. Foster carers have a lot of children. They don't just have one foster kid. They have several. And so we are added extra. You know, we're and we're a bonus in the home and we give the children very special attention. And it's very interesting because all the children will say to the pyjama angel, how much do you get paid to do this? And they are quite delighted when they know that they're volunteer. They ask that quite commonly, mm. do they? The kids will say yeah. to the... How much do you get paid to do this? And so they must feel valued and special when they know that the, the volunteer isn't paid. And the, the second question they ask is, are you going to come back next week? I have some wonderful, wonderful volunteers that contribute to the lives of vulnerable kids. But in saying that, they get more out of the experience than what the children do because really to give is to receive. If you want to make yourself happy, then you make other people happy. I was with some volunteers on the weekend and they were saying she pulls up out the front and she can hear the children delightfully squealing in the house going, Susie's here, Susie's here, Susie's here. So she said, when I walk in the house, I've automatically got a smile on my face.
podcast. Broadcast. This is Conversations with Richard Feidler. Hear more conversations anytime on the ABC Listen app. It's often said that kids who have these backgrounds in care, they can respond in two ways from the instability of their home life. They can either act up and be antisocial, which is a kind of form mm-hmm. of defence, or they can go the other way and try and be super charming. They think like, they're super sweet and charming. They'll beguile the adults to stay in their lives. Do you find that's the case? Yeah, absolutely. Kids? It's probably, yeah. And and look, you know, the kids have to learn. It's all about the relationship. And you have to build up trust of the child and you have to do fun things when you turn up. So our pyjama angels turn up with books, puzzles, games, craft. And some of the kids just really, really will resonate with playing games. You think that you're going to turn up to the house and this child is going to look at you and say, please read me a book, then you might be seriously misled that you need to build up a relationship and a trust. And we follow the interests of the child as well. And the interest of the kids is, you know, still quite similar to what it always has been. Like could it could be trains, it could be dinosaurs. Blue is pretty popular at the moment as well. So we follow the interest level of the child and we really are led by what they're interested in and then we slowly navigate them round to the number of books we can read aloud to them, etc. You, you were talking about a thousand books being read to a child. It sounds like the focus was initially on preschool kids to begin with. Yeah. When did you realise you had to sort of broaden your reach beyond that. Yeah, after I set up my program, I was we get referrals from the agency and the Department of Child Safety and I got a referral for a child that was in grade seven that had a reading level of grade two and would we help? And so we actually read to all ages and we've just developed a teenage program as well, teen life skill program. And for the kids that are in our program and we're doing lots of fun things with them, like a barista course and flower decorations, sewing classes, and to try and keep them engaged with their pyjama angel and in their education. One young lady who was um, 18 when she came into foster care, she was in a sibling group of 13 kids. They all were in care. Her name was Grace and she had a pyjama angel when she was eight and her pyjama angel Barb stayed with her for 10 years until she finished school and it was um, 18. See, uh, when children enter care, they lose their, you know, contact um, with their extended family as well. And Barb played a very great role as a grandmother figure and they're still in contact today. And actually, I just found out talking to Grace just recently that she's um, going to move in with Barb for a, a little while as well. And Grace is now... Uh, nearly 22 and she has her own child and she works full time. She is a resilient, amazing, beautiful young lady. I won't take all the credit for her her great future, but um, she was in a beautiful foster care placement as well. But, you know, I think we've broken the cycle there. Everyone as a team, she reads books aloud to her little t- toddler. What amazes me is how resilient some of the children are and how resilient human beings can be. Who are these people who typically volunteer for this role as pyjama angels? Yeah, so they're 90% female. We tend to resonate with females. 75% have higher education than grade 12, and about 75% would work full-time or part-time. 
So fabulous role models for these children. We lift the gaze of these kids because they're associated with engineers and firemen and teachers and librarians and they're opened, their eyes are open to all the different careers um, that you can be. And, you know, there is a saying that is uh, you can't be what you can't see. I think we lift the gaze of these beautiful kids and that they can see a future for themselves. Kids are so delightful. They're hard work, yes, but they are so delightful when they're little. They're so delightful. What effect can it have on the volunteers' lives, having a a little kid pinging around their lives once more? Oh, beautiful. Really, really beautiful. And our our pyjama angels do become quite attached to the kids. And then they get to meet the pyjama angels family and the pyjama angels dog. And so it's a wraparound effect, really, that these children have a lot of positive people in their lives. Do volunteers expect, sometimes expect the the kids to be grateful and then get hurt if the kids aren't grateful for what, or or not are apparently grateful for whatever reason? Look, I think we train our, our volunteers very realistically. To build up a relationship with their child can take a good couple of months. You know, I think there's myths about the foster care system that a child enters foster care and there they live happily ever after and that a child should be grateful because they're placed with a new loving family. But, you know, it's a tough life. It's hard and the lives of these kids can be tricky if you don't know or have a relationship with your biological parents. Foster kids, you know, like Grace, always feel like they don't quite fit into normal society. I mean, Grace tells the story that when she was at school, the role was accidentally projected on the wall and she had a dot beside her name, which meant that she was a kid in care. It was an accident that the role went up. She was probably the only person that saw that the dot was there. She saw that the dot was there. She did. When you come from a broken family and even even adopted children, you never quite feel like you 100% fit in. And I think that is a weight that these children will carry with them. Is there a problem sometimes when the kids obviously attach themselves to this lovely volunteer who's coming around all the time to... Do some of these parents feel usurped in some ways? And do you know how to deal with that situation? Well, we deal with the foster parents and the foster parents are very grateful for the support. They're at the front line of yeah. the situation. Yeah, of course. Yeah, and that's who we deal with. So we don't we don't tend to deal with the biological parents. Some and with some children in out of home care, they have contact with their parents and some and some don't. There's no one child that is the same really in this sector. But I think we send a very strong message to these children and is that they are special and that they are valued by society. You tell the story of a little boy who came to your organisation who was three years old called Charlie. Tell me a bit about his story. Oh, Charlie's one of my faves. He's, he has a special place in my heart. He was born at 27 weeks, premature. His family were unable to care for him. He needed to be on oxygen for the first 12 months of his life and then had many doctor's appointments from being so premature and so ended up staying with his midwife who became his foster carer. He got referred to our program when he was three years old and he, I heard from Renee, his pyjama angel, how gorgeous he was and I thought she was exaggerating until I got to meet him and he was the most gorgeous little kid, charismatic, funny, full of life. Renee was his pyjama angel for eight years. 
he influenced her to go teaching and become a school teacher. She used to read books aloud to him and he used to hang upside down on the monkey bars in the backyard while she read to him. Um, the perfect reading position <laughs> of yeah. an ancient Eastern mystic's. <laughs> Going back so, thousands of years. So while he was ha- hanging upside down when he needed to see the picture, she had to turn the book upside <laughs> down. But they had a beautiful relationship and um, she stayed with him for eight years until she had her first child. And then uh, she had to stop being his pyjama angel, but she called his first child Charlie after him. And when he was five, she, he was the ring bearer in her bridal party. He had two other pyjama angels throughout his teenage years. He finished grade 12, the only person in his family to complete his schooling. And he went to university last year. He, he has a very special place in my heart. He does a lot. Of, he's now 19. He's probably your size, if not bigger. He is um, a beautiful young man, and I can't wait to see what he does with his future. You mentioned that the very large majority of your volunteers are women. Why do you think you haven't had more male volunteers? I think males probably are reluctant and would volunteer in maybe a sporting capacity or something, you know, along those lines. You know, it is child protection, so maybe there is some hesitancy, you know, around being a male and being around children. I think there are a lot of men afraid of being accused of taking an unseemly interest or something like that. I think that does happen. It's a shame. Yeah, it is a shame. We have 10% of our volunteers are male. We've got lots of different professions, once again, uh, from engineers to medical researchers to Firemen. We had a fireman up in Mackay who was a pajama angel. Did and he bring his truck? He brought the fire truck around to the foster home. We had. What a... effect did that have when you brought <laughs> up with a fire? Like I'm, I'm not, a, I'm not a kid anymore, Bromman. I'm still interested in fire trucks. It's beautiful. It's beautiful. I mean, you can't beat a fire truck. I have a big Christmas party every year, and Santa arrives in a fire truck. I think that's my favourite moment of the year with the engines blaring and and the look on the children's faces is absolutely delightful. And they see this fireman who does this. Wonderful job, who's brave, who saves people's houses, people's lives, property, all that sort of thing. And what a wonderful role model. What a wonderful role model for young boys. And our research tells us that the most important person to read books aloud to a boy is a man. It has the most impact. Men tend to read different books or written material than what a female would. I got all the bush poetry from my dad when I was yeah. growing up. He gave me Henry Lawson and Banjo Patterson and uh, and everything else. I got that from my dad. I never would. I think I would have gotten that from my mum. Didn't really interest her, but I got that from my dad. Yeah, we've actually had quite a few pyjama angels that have introduced poetry and it's been really successful with the kids. I've loved that as well. Tell me about the engineering student called Pete who became one of your volunteers. No, he was one of my original volunteers. He was an engineering student at the time and he was called Pajama Pete. Amazing young man. 19 he was at the time. He got him reading after six months. First of all, he wouldn't sit still and listen to one book. Then after six months, he could listen to six books. And then after that, he wouldn't leave home with his favourite book in his hand, which then was the three Billy Goats graph. And I don't think Pete had a car at the time, but he used to um, catch the bus. And I think at the end of their session, they used to have a running race down to the bus stop. So Pajama Pete has gone on. He would be well into his 30s now, and he's gone on to a successful career and his own children, which I am sure he would read books aloud to from a very early age. So 20 years ago, you probably knew almost nothing about the foster care system. 
now, you probably know just about as much as anyone does in Australia about the foster care system. You said there are quite a few myths in the public mind about that system. What are some of those myths and what's the truth as you've seen it? There's no question this is a tough sector. There is multiple children and the numbers of children have doubled. I have met thousands of foster carers and I have been nothing short of impressed by what they do from the load that they carry, from their motivation for caring, from what they have to tackle every day. I, I think that there needs to be organisations like myself that can contribute in some small way. I think that working in child protection is really hard as well. I mean, no, everyone wants the best outcome for children. And, you know, the system might not be perfect, but children that are really well cared for in this sector, um, unfortunately, the bad stories always make the press. People like to, everyone's got an opinion but they might not know what this sector is about and about all the good people that are in the sector. Every once in a while, I'll talk to a foster carer who is heroically kind mm. and people will want to know, you know, what compels them to do it? How is it that they do what they do? Do you have an answer for that? I think they want to give back to the community that they might have had some, their parents might have been foster carers, that they have come across a foster child um, they might have been a teacher at the school. Um, they might have been a midwife that's looked after a little baby like Charlie. Everyone's motivation is slightly different, but they are very brave. Um, they do open their hearts and their homes. They get their hearts broken. I think they're extraordinary people and that they deserve our praise and our assistance and our acknowledgement and our thanks. In 2009, you were the Queensland mm -hmm. Australian of the Year, and you would have done a lot of travelling. You would have met a whole lot of people all over the place. What do you remember of that year and the things you found out by being in that role for that year that you might not have known beforehand? Yeah, look, this organisation has taken me all over Australia over the years. I've spoken everywhere, from rotary groups to classrooms to I've been to the lodge I've met the Prime Minister. I have, I often speak at conferences. I, th I think. Do you feel com comfortable sitting around those tables? And if you do, how, how, how do you make yourself feel comfortable sitting at the, 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 the tables of such people? See, this is not about me. I'm not talking on behalf of myself. I'm talking on behalf of Charlie. When you put that in perspective, then it's easy. I'm also talking about the Pajama Foundation, which I invented. And so that's easy and that's my passion. And, you know, it's kind of funny how my life has ended up in this direction. My mother has a favourite story of when I was in grade one, I was the only person in the classroom that hadn't done a morning talk. I was flying under the radar until I got caught out by my teacher. And I l lined up all my dolls and teddy bears in my room and practised <laughs> talking in front of them. And now my mum likes Ladies to... and gentlemen, I suppose <laughs> you're wondering why I've called you here today. <laughs> that kind of thing? Pretty much. I don't know Welcome why... Welcome to my TED Talk. <laughs> <laughs> I've done a TED Talk. I've studied... Um, I've done a short course at Harvard. Um, you know, my life is incredibly rich. But what grounds me and who I'm talking to on behalf of, which makes it easy, is the Charlies of the world and the graces of the world and talking on their behalf. There is another way to look at your organisation, which is a long-standing, two decades long conspiracy 
to make it permissible to wear pyjamas to work. Now, you have this once a year and encourage people to wear pyjamas to work as a fundraising and awareness exercise. I think this is tremendous. I think COVID pushed things along quite a bit. We did well over COVID. Yeah. Like, so long as the pyjamas are securely fastened, I think that it would be a fine thing if we wore pyjamas to work all the time. How about you? Oh, yeah, absolutely. So, um, once a year, the third Friday in July, we have National Pyjama Day. And actually, the last time I was in the ABC studio, I was um, wearing my pyjamas. So, I feel rather underdressed today. <laughs> but there's nothing more equalising than everyone in their pyjamas. My goal is to have everyone in Australia on National Pyjama Day in July wearing their pyjamas to school or work for the day. Sensational. How fantastic to speak with you, Bronwyn. Thank you so much. My absolute pleasure. Thank you for having me. You've been listening to a podcast of Conversations with Richard Feidler. For more Conversations interviews, please go to the website abc.net.au slash conversations. It's Carl here. I'm the co-host of the ABC's Short and Curly podcast. Now, at Short and Curly, we're also big fans of conversations, especially the kind between kids and adults. Around the dinner table or on long family car trips, the kinds of conversations that get everyone thinking, debating, and sharing their ideas. In a world that's sometimes difficult to navigate for kids and for us adults, me and my co-hosts Molly Daniels and ethicist expert Matt Beard are here to help start those conversations about the stuff we all face as we try to get through our lives the best way we know how. We've got a new season of shows out now that are sure to get the opinions flying at your place as we try to imagine the world without some pretty big things, like a world without heartbreak, or privacy, or winning and losing, and there's plenty more. You can find and follow Short and Curly on the ABC Listen app.